Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 11, Part 2. Supper over, a bed for the night was the next problem. There were no beds in the hut, so we all slept on the bamboo floor around the central fireplace. Our bedding was still streaked with damp. I chose the drive spots for Danny and wrapped him up well, but I had to lie down on part of the quilt and covered with the non-too-dry blankets. Then the storm began again with violence. It held outside once, and then rain came spattering down. Every now and again it spat through the leaks of the roof on our faces, and although it was a depressing situation, I knew it was snowing hard on the pass, and as it blew hard all night, by morning the pass would be closed. In other words, we were shut up to be going forward. But what if I got lumbago from sleeping in the damp bedding? I had caught it some years before, and at that time the bedding was drier than this. With lumbago, I could not walk or ride a horse all day, no matter how I summons my willpower. I was hopelessly cast upon the Lord. Was I really in his will to come? This time he had given me no Bible verse on which to lean. I had asked for one, but none came. It would have been so comfortable to have a Bible verse to stand upon, as in my experience of 1942. This was eight years later, and God expects his children to grow. I believe it was D.E. Host who said that the older he grew, the harder it seemed to get guidance from the Lord. I believe he meant that guidance becomes less simple. God expects us to exercise spiritual discernment, and he guides us by certain pressure on the spirit, by a still, small voice by something so delicately intangible that unless you're carefully tuned into his spirit, so to speak, you can miss it widely. It requires a close and experienced walk with the Lord. So in one sense, he has a hold on us that might not be if he always supplied us with a Bible verse every time we ask for one. When it is only a still, small voice which is our guide, it is easy for Satan to throw us into confusion by causing us to question if we heard aright. It is a good plan not to go back on past guidance. Yet how patient is our master. He does not desert us even then. I did not get lumbago or even rheumatism. We had to travel in the rain more than once after that, for the storm continued. As we journeyed through the mountains, Danny asked me to sing the 99 and 9, for I happened to remember all the verses. And when we came to, all through the mountains, thunder-ridden, and up the rocky steep, He would join in with great gusto, and the mountains thunder-ridden seemed our daily diet. But the road was not as bad as maybe you were thinking. True, it took us through the jungle of Upper Burma, but the British, when in power in Burma, had caused fairly good roads to be cut and maintained through the Pema Pass, and every 10 to 15 miles they built rest houses. These were simple rustic bungalows built in a clearing in the jungle and had a native caretaker in charge. There were beds without mattresses or bedding. Every traveler carried his own, and a table and a chair, and a caretaker could cook a decent meal. The Japanese had destroyed the rest houses nearer to the border, so we did not come across any for several days. Once we did so, however, I began to fill in clover, sure of a clean, good rest at night. But before we reached these, we arrived at a place where lived a Lesu Christian from Salween. We stayed at his house, and the next morning a message reached us. Mrs. Kuhn was to report to the Burmese official immediately. Knowing I had no visa to enter Burma, I had to comply, although it meant saddling Jasper and riding back up the mountain to the official's residence. 
The effect proved to be well worth it, however. The official was a Karen and a Christian, and he told me so himself almost as soon as he greeted me. He gave me some good advice about what to do in my visaless state. I must report to the police as soon as I arrived at any point of importance. Mayakina or Ragoon. By shortwave radio, he must advise the police at Mayakina of my approach. But he also sent word to the American Baptist missionary in residence at Mayakina, Reverend Herman Tagenfeld, who perhaps was able to meet us with his jeep. There was a motor road that would save us two days' travel if we could get a vehicle on it. I thanked the official, and our party went back down the hill and on our way. That night, as I registered at the rest house, I was startled and thrilled to see in a very familiar handwriting, Mr. and Mrs. Orville Carlson. I knew the Carlsons were hoping to go to Gumu and teach them Myra Ketchen, whom Mark had led to the Lord. A thousand of them had believed before Mark died, but I had not heard for sure if they got out of Yunnan before it fell to the communists. We had missed them by only one week, and it was a jolt of joy to know that there was somebody in Burma whom I knew. In between those rest houses, the road was often cut through heavy jungle. Wild animals abounded. The fresh spore of a tiger lay on the dew-soft earth one early morning as we started out. We all had to keep together at such times, but the Lord protected us all the way. As we reached the motor road and the rest house beside it, some of the Lesu had never seen a truck, and I was hoping I could pay a driver to give him a little ride. The government rice truck drove in the very evening we arrived, and the driver had a short trip to make the next morning. He would take the Lesu with him, and from there they could go on to Mayakina on foot. They would leave their loads behind, and he would return and get us and the baggage and drive us to Mayakina. On the strength of that promise, Samson and the mountain chair carriers asked permission to be allowed to set out on their return journey back into China. The mule could not go on the truck. Someone must go back with it, and these Lacey were not interested in seeing Mayakina anyway. So the next morning we said goodbye to them and cheered off the excited group who were to have their first auto ride. Lucius was the only one left with Danny and me. Imagine our chagrin when about noon we received a telephone message at the rest house saying that the truck had been broken down. But as the driver had assured the Lesu, the other trucks would take us. The dear Lesu were not returning to us. This did leave us in a predicament, all our heavy baggage with us and no carriers. We inquired about a truck and were told that they did not come frequently, perhaps once a week. All the following morning we waited and prayed. So you can imagine our feelings when about noon we heard a motor toot down the road. We all ran out to look. There was a real jeep with a white man at the wheel coming merrily towards us. Mr. Tangafelt and his two children, Alice and John. They had brought a picnic lunch, beautifully prepared by his wife. And at the sight of those fine sandwiches wrapped in wax paper, I felt I had reached civilization again. Mayakina is perhaps the most important city in the upper Burma. It has an airport, and the Irrawaddy River runs by it. Here the Tegenfelts lived, and from here, with its city, church, and school, they also kept in touch with the large country work among the tribes. There were several of the tribes which were ranked higher than the Lesu in intelligence and tribal culture. Mr. Tegenfelt supervised work in all of these. But one of my first questions was concerning the letter which headquarters had promised to write to Mr. Tegenfelt, guaranteeing a refund of any sums of money advanced to me. No such letter had come, said Mr. Tegenfeld. I cannot tell you the dismay and alarm that filled me. The title of this chapter may seem far-fetched to the reader, but is descriptive of my feelings rather than my actual condition. I was now at the other end of the world from home. 
I had practically no Burmese money, did not speak their language, and had no one in the whole country to guarantee me. Moreover, I did not understand the mission silence. It was a time of great stress among us all, and mis- mistakes were possible. I was in turmoil of questions, and I felt stranded at the end of the world. Well, the first thing is to cast out fear. The only fear a Christian should entertain is the fear of sin. All other fears are from Satan, sent to confuse and weaken us. How often the Lord reminded his disciples, Be not afraid. So alone in our bedroom in the Tagafelt's nice home, I knelt down by the bed and spread my heart before him. I refused to be afraid, and I asked him to cast such fears out of my heart. Then I must seek light for the next step. I must report to the Burmese police, but after that I would need to find a way to get some money. We still had some of Grandpa Coon's legacy in the bank of John's hometown, Mayhem, Pennsylvania. I had blank checks with me, but who would believe that I really had money there? Would the Tangenfelds trust me? They had never met me before and only knew that there was a Coon family working in the Sawin Canyon. Rather timidly, I asked Mr. Tegenfeld if he would cash a check for me, quite a large check, because I found that we would have to fly to Rangoon. The railroad had been bombed and there was no through trains. No, I don't think I can, replied Mr. Tegenfeld. Why don't you go to the street and try to sell it? He did not even offer to come along and guarantee me, but I found out later why he seemed so unconcerned. He knew an endorsement would not be required and probably did not guess my doubts. So with Lucia for company and the little book of blank checks on a small town bank in America, I started down the business street looking for some shop where someone might speak English. We'd not gone far when a tall Hindu, bearded and turbaned, smiled and said, Good morning. Timidly, I entered his shop and produced my book. I am a missionary, I said. Would you cash a check for me? For how much, he inquired gravely. For 150 American, I replied. He took the check and looked at it for a moment. Is this negotiable in India, he asked. Yes, I replied. It can be cashed anywhere. All right, he answered, and in five minutes a roll of Burmese money was in my hand. Just as easy as that. No one had even asked to see my passport. I felt like Alice in Wonderland as I returned jubilant to the Tegenfeld's home. Apparently, Christian missionaries are so trusted in Burma that they can cash a check anywhere without a guarantee I knew of no other country in the world where this can be done. Well, so far, so good. Now to Rangoon. Mr. Tagenfeld took me to the police and helped me with all the red tape involved. In fact, no one could have been kinder than Ruth and Herman Tagenfeld were to me in every way. Word had gone around that Mama and Danny were in Mayakina and a large group of lace who came to see us, including Abraham, the, the Nepal. Men who had been in our RSBC and others who had fled to Burma when the brigand scare was on. We had a precious time together. But at Rangoon, where would we stay? The Tagenfelts gave us the address of a missionary guest house, where they always stayed, and I wired to inquire if they could accommodate us, but I received no answer. Lucius and another Lesu boy rode with us to the airport, and it was hard to say goodbye. I felt I might never see him again on this earth, and I have not. But just before we boarded the plane, a note was handed to me by a passenger getting off it. Once we were up in the air, I opened it and saw it was signed, Eric Cox. Oh, how I thanked the Lord. Eric had been working among a tribe far south of the Sinyanan. His dear wife, Grace Liddell Cox, had died on furlough. I knew that he, too, hoped to go home to America to see his children, and that he planned to go via Burma, but I did not know he was leaving. The note said that he was at the guest house when my telegram arrived, and hearing the hostess say she had no room for us, he had made arrangements for us to stay with the Bible Churchman Missionary Society Deaf School, and he hoped to meet us at the airport. 
What could have been more wonderful? Psalm 59.10 My God with his loving kindness will meet me had been fulfilled again, and I was thrilled. Maybe we could travel on the same ship with Uncle Eric, and Danny would have the pleasure of his companionship. Eric had been a sea officer holding a master's certificate when God called him to the missionary service, so there was nothing about his ship that he was not able to teach a small boy. But still I had an unknown adventure to go through before we reached Rangoon. The airplane was a freight plane, dirty and uncomfortable. We had been told we would come down only once before Rangoon, that being in Mandalay. But lo and behold, we came down in Bamon. Danny had gotten his hand in some black grease, so I took him off the plane, hoping to find a washroom. Bama was a flat, hot place with some Burmese officers standing in a group talking. Low, one-storied buildings in the background. Just then, a jeep drove up. In it were two white people, dust-covered and looking like, well, like missionaries. Glad to meet my own kind, I was approaching them when they sprang and almost ran into me. You're a missionary? Your name, please? asked the lady. Mrs. John Kuhn from China. Oh, we know your husband. He visited us at Namcom last year. I'm Grace Seagrave, and this is my brother Gordon. Of course, I had heard of the famous Seagrave family. I bowed and indicated Danny's dirty hands and was about to ask where the washroom was when Dr. Grace said, Oh, Gordon will take him and wash him up, which Dr. Gordon did. All this time, Dr. Grace was chattering anything and everything, coming so close to me that I instinctively backed away. I did not see at first that she was deliberately doing this to back me to a place where we would be alone and not overheard by the curious Burmese official group. When she had me backed away from them and against the side of the plane, she suddenly produced a letter and said, We have had trouble in Nangham Hospital. There's been a Kirin uprising, and Gordon is falsely accused with helping them. Our mail is all intercepted, and we cannot get our side of the affair out to our friends. We drove 60 miles today and hoped that there would be someone on this plane who would take this letter for us to the American consul in Rangoon. It explains our side. Quick, have you got a pocket in your shirt or somewhere to put it? Political intrigue? This was the last thing I wanted to get mixed up in. I, with no visa from Burma and having to report to the police as soon as I arrived in Rangoon, I faltered in replay, praying inwardly, Oh, Lord, direct me what to do. Now, unknown to Dr. Grace, there was a Burmese officer walking up and down behind her, watching our every move. Just as I prayed that, this official reached the end of his walk and had to turn to come back. Instead of turning towards us, he turned away from us. In just that one second, I quickly opened the large pocketbook I held in my hand. Dr. Grace popped the letter into it, and when that man resumed his guard over us, there was nothing for him to see. Dr. Gordon Seagray returned with Danny, and the call came to board the plane, and we were off. But now I carried on my person that which, if discovered, might put me in prison. Dr. Gordon Seagray was put in prison later on over this very affair. I understand that Dr. Grace died the next year. We're going to stop here and continue it next time, and we'll find out what happened. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.